Thanks, Sarah. Good morning. How are you guys doing? Good. My name's Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Tom Hanks once said that if it's not hard, everyone would do it. It's the hard that makes it great. Now, I don't know about you, but for me personally, that is one of the least motivating things that could ever be told to me. (laughs) Telling me that something is hard and that that's going to make it worth it does zero in my book. In fact, it makes it's probably like demotivating. It pushes me in the other direction, actually. Uh, I kind of hate this sentiment, and I don't even know what he's talking about. I didn't even take the time to look up what he was getting at when he talked about something being hard. But the fact that something's hard does not make it just good enough for me. I would rather be like Michael Scott, the illustrious leader of the office in Scranton, who once said, Sometimes you have to take a break from being the kind of boss that's always trying to teach people things. Sometimes you have to be the boss of dancing. That's my kind of advice. Now, I'm not going to say that dancing answers all of your problems, but dancing might answer a lot of your problems, actually, if you give it a shot. Maybe somewhere in that 40 to 60% range. I'm just saying, try it out sometime. We're in the middle of a series called Follow the Leader, where we're looking at leaders from the Bible and learning how to live from them, and more importantly, learning what it looks like to follow Jesus more clearly from their lives. We've talked about Mary and Martha, friends of Jesus. We talked about Priscilla, who was a friend and a co-leader with the Apostle Paul. And this week, as I was thinking about leadership, my mind kept going to a couple of, uh, I'll call them articles, Instagram posts, that I've seen friends posting, people that I don't know posting, every Christian leader seems to want to write about it over the past month. And that's two specific uh, former, now, leaders in the church who have decided to call it quits in their relationship with Jesus. One's a former best-selling author and pastor, The other is a former worship leader from a well-known worship group. If I said some of the things that they've done, you would probably know who they are if you haven't read these stories already. Two well-known leaders in the church who decided to completely walk away from Jesus. And they went on Instagram to tell us about it. So, of course, everybody wanted to comment. The worship leader said that it's time for some real talk. I'm genuinely losing my faith, and it doesn't bother me. Like, what bothers me now is nothing. I'm so happy now, so at peace with the world, it's crazy. All I know is that what's true to me right now in Christianity just seems to me like another religion at this point. I could go on, but I won't. The former best-selling author and pastor said, I've undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Many people tell me that there's a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I'm not there now. You know, I've read and reread these posts over the past month, and I've skimmed through what a lot of other influential people and a lot of not influential people have written about it. And I think one of the things that bothers me the most about this is the reactions that I've seen. I've seen people get really, really happy that these guys have come out and said this. 
because it, you know, it makes their whole platform for walking away from Jesus feel more firm. And that's fine in its own way, but it's not the reaction I would hope to see. And then I've seen other people who have been really, really angry that these pastors and leaders would walk away from Jesus and be so vocal about it. And honestly, I don't like their anger and the self-righteousness of that either. I haven't liked what I've seen. And what I wish that I would have seen more is just sadness. Because it's heartbreaking when people walk away from Jesus. It's heartbreaking. You know, this isn't new. People have been walking away from Jesus as long as Christianity has been an option. Jesus' own friends, the 12, some of them walked away from him immediately after realizing who it was that he was. This isn't a new thing. It's been going on for centuries, so it's not shocking to me that well-known figures in the church walk away from Jesus, but it's sad. And honestly, I think what saddens me the most in it is that this can happen way too easily. And I'm going to hypothesize a little bit, but I think that I can do it based on what they've said. For these guys and for many others, the reason that they've walked away from Jesus isn't because of their own relationship with Jesus just being so deep and then something rocked it. It's because their relationship with Jesus was based on somebody else's relationship with Jesus. Their whole uh, kind of pond that they were swimming in was based on the theology, the experiences, the, the thoughts of somebody else. And as soon as something came along that knocked all of that away, what they were left with was standing in a very shadow, shallow pool, puddle of water that they didn't feel like they had anything to grab hold of. Their own experience, their own relationship with Jesus wasn't much. It was all based on somebody else. Their relationship with Jesus was really somebody else's relationship with Jesus. And I think I can say that because that's basically what they've said. And that's a really sad thing to see happen. Today I want to look at the story of a woman in the Old Testament who probably wouldn't have called herself a leader. Um, in fact, she goes way out of her way to make sure that everybody who's following her leaves her alone. Uh, she tries to kick them all out and tell them to stop following her because she's not worth following. She doesn't want to deal with it anymore. I want to talk about a woman who resented it. And yet her story, and it's the story of a very uh, imperfect leader at best. But in her story, I think we can learn what it looks like to deal with bitterness, to deal with resentment, to deal with sorrow, to deal with pain, to deal with brokenness, and to still remain connected to Jesus. To still have something when you've walked through that. This woman did not do everything right, but I think she shows us a path for how we can do things a little bit better than she did. And so I want to look at her life. The woman I'm talking about is Naomi, the mother-in-law of Ruth from the Old Testament book of Ruth. I'm going to do something a little bit different this week and next. So I'm going to tell you the same story two weeks in a row. So you're like, great, not coming next week. No, I'm telling you the same story two weeks in a row, but from two different vantage points. This week, we're talking about Naomi. Next week, we're going to talk about Ruth, the wandering leader, the, the misfit in a land that she wasn't supposed to be a part of, uh, who finds her inheritance when she sinks down deep roots. 
I want to talk about that next week. But today, I want to look at how we, as followers of Jesus, can remain connected even in times of burnout, in times of bitterness. And honestly, I want to say this to all of us, pastorally, we've all been there. If you follow Jesus for any amount of time, you are going to reach that point where you start to doubt, where you start to question, where the bitterness is piling up, where the frustration is reaching a a level that you're not sure you can deal with, where your theology seems a little too shaking, where your own experience of Jesus doesn't seem to match up to where your life is. And yet there's still hope. So if that's where you're at today, if you've been there recently and you still have the scars, I would just want to encourage you, stick with me this morning and invite Jesus into that place. Because I think he wants to bring some healing to us in this. So let's pray. Jesus, I just thank you for your presence being here. It's like that last song that we sang. We know that you're wanting to do something. We know that a breakthrough is coming. We know that you're wanting to do a miracle. We believe that. We believe that you're an active force in our life, not a passive force, not somebody who sits back and just watches with a lot of rules, but that you're somebody who comes in, who changes things, who changes our hearts, who changes our situation, who brings hope, who brings love, who brings kindness in places where we need it. And so I ask for that today. Let us be aware of your presence. Let us be aware of your kindness today, Jesus. We love you. We want to follow you. We just say that we are yours. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to do something a little bit more unique that we don't usually do. I'm not going to have you open your Bible, but if it makes you feel more orthodox, you can open your Bible to Ruth. But I'm not actually going to read very many verses. I'm going to tell you the story. I want to walk through the story, and it'll take me too darn long to read all the verses. So we're going to do it a little bit differently today. But if it makes you feel better, open up your Bibles to Ruth chapter 1, and then you can feel like we're all in a good spot. So Ruth's story, or as we're going to look at it today, Naomi's story begins with heartbreak. Right away. It opens up in a hard way. Her and her husband and their sons are forced to leave their community, the town, the land that they've lived in, the only place they've ever known, and move because of famine. There's no food, so they're forced to leave. So they leave Bethlehem, they leave Israel, and they travel out and they end up in Moab, which if you've read any of the books leading up to Ruth, Genesis to Judges, you know that Moab is not a good place to be if you're an Israelite. They actually really, really don't like each other. Uh, They're pretty big enemies. Moab's tried in some sneaky, underhanded ways to take down Israel. So it's not really the place you would want to end up at if you were an Israelite, but that's where her and her family ends up. It's her, her husband, and their two sons here in Moab. And very quickly we're told that her husband dies. You know what's worse than being a forced immigrant to a country that doesn't like you? Being a forced immigrant to a country that doesn't like you when you're a widow and you have two kids doesn't make life that much easier. So here she is, taking care of her sons, and then we're told that her sons 
do something that would have driven her crazy. They marry Moabite women. Now, to you, this might be like, okay, I don't understand. But to a religious Israelite during that time, this was one of the worst things she, they could have ever done because this meant she could never go back home. It would have been too scandalous for her to return home with two sons who married Moabite women, godless women who don't worship Yahweh, who don't adhere to their customs and their rules. It would have been scandal. She could never go back, so she's stuck. And then 10 years later, I mean, this would be a fun story to live out, right? Because there's a lot of and thens. 10 years later, they both die. Both of her sons dead. And I've only reached the end of the first paragraph in the book of Ruth. (laughs) That's a brutal beginning uh, to this story that we're at. She's lost her husband. She's lost her sons. She's stuck in Moab alone, no family, no ways to provide for herself, really. She's a foreigner in a land that doesn't really like her. Naomi stuck in Moab alone. End of paragraph one. So she decides to go back to Bethlehem. And this part, it kills me. It cracks me up. So she packs up all of her stuff. She puts it on her donkey. She jumps on, and she's still got her daughter-in-laws who are like hanging out with her. So she tells them. She like kicks at them. She's like, leave. Leave me alone. Go back to your parents' house. Like, I don't want, I can't give you anything. I can't have any more babies, so I can't give you another husband. Uh, I, I don't have any money. I don't have any food. I have no way to take care of you. And she tries to force them to leave her. And the first daughter-in-law, they, they push and pull, both of them, and they say, no, we're, we'll never leave you, we'll never leave you. The first one finally gives up. She's like, fine, you're cranky anyway, I'm going home. So she goes back to her parents' house. But the second daughter-in-law stays. And I love what Ruth does. Ruth, the daughter-in-law who stays, she grabs a hold of Naomi, and this godless Moabite uh, widow grabs a hold of her Israelite mother-in-law and gives her a verbal smacking that would uh, take her all the way back to Bethlehem. She tells her, this godless woman, quote-unquote, gives her a speech about covenant, about love, about loyalty that Naomi should have been the one giving a speech about. She's the one that worships God, right? And she tells her how it is. She lays it down for her, and she leaves Naomi with no choice, but to take her with her. So they leave for Bethlehem. And when they arrive, now this, anybody grow up in a small town? I'm talking like 5,000 people or less. So if, when you arrive back in a small town, everybody knows you, because everybody knows everybody. And so Naomi arrives back in her village and everybody knows her. And so they all start coming out and all the women are like, wait a minute, isn't that Naomi? And then they all start huddling around and they're like, Naomi, where have you been for the past 30 years? Where's your husband? Where's your sons? What's been going on? Why'd you come back? Where'd you go? What's going on? Tell me about your life. And they all start like coming at her because everybody wants to know in this small town, not much happens. She returns back. It's newsworthy, right? The newspaper's there. They're taking pictures. It's what it is. Everybody's around. And then Naomi blows a gasket. And she just jumps up and she screams, stop, just stop it. Get away from me. She goes, I might've left as Naomi, 
but the woman you see in front of you is not Naomi anymore. My husband died. My sons have died. I have nothing left to my name. No one has stuck with me except for my Moabite daughter-in-law who I tried to leave back in Moab, but she kept following me all the way. She even brought her own donkey to get here. I can't get her to leave me alone. Just leave me alone. She says, I might have left as Naomi, but stop calling me that name that means pleasant. From now on, that name is Debt. Just call me bitter. How do we lead when we're struggling? How do we follow Jesus when all of the reasons to walk away have lined up way too high? How do we keep going when we're in that place? Because we all have experiences like this. Naomi isn't alone in all of this, but honestly, she is a terrible example of what it looks like to follow Jesus up to this point. I'm certain Ruth was hating her decision to follow Naomi home. Uh, She did not make it fun to stick with her. She was not a pleasant person. She's given up. She blows up. She's definitely not living her best life now. She might need to listen to Joel Osteen a couple times to get back up to that point. Uh, She's made a decision, a terrible decision to sit in her junk and to just keep letting it get stinkier and stinkier. She's not getting up from it. She's just allowing it to be what it is. And we're all capable of doing the same thing. So let's be real for a minute. All people, even Christians, maybe even especially Christians, struggle. We go through really hard times. We go through periods of doubt. We question whether the thing that we're doing that we thought that God asked us to do is actually what God asked us to do. We question whether it's even worth continuing to do the thing that we're doing that we thought that God asked us to do. We wonder if it's just time to give it all up and to walk away. We have life happen to us. We get sick. We, we lose our job. Our, our family members and friends get really sick. Sometimes they die. We have friends who stab us in the back, who cut us us really deeply. We have people who we counted on, who we trusted, our bosses, our co-workers, our, our pastors, leaders, people that we walk alongside of who do really stupid things that end up hurting large groups of people. We ourselves do really stupid things that end up hurting large groups of people. We all go through this. This isn't unique to anyone. It's certainly not unique to Naomi, although at this point she's trying to pretend like it is unique to her. She keeps acting like she's the only one that's ever gone through anything hard. Just leave me alone, people. But we've all been there. And for many of us, this has led to that place of burnout. Now, I don't think burnout in the church is a 20th or 21st century thing, even though sometimes we like to make it out like it is. We're like, no, the church has just turned into too much of a business. There's way too many things that we have to do to keep up with the business of following Jesus. And I just need to take a break from it all. I just need to step back and not allow any of this to, to phase me, to affect me anymore, because it's, it's everything else. I just need a break. This isn't a new thing. People have wanted a break from following Jesus since Jesus was alive. This is a continual issue. It's not a novel idea. It's not a new concept. It's as old as humanity. And this is where we find Naomi. 
And Naomi was true to her word. She did nothing. It got so bad that they didn't have any food. And so Ruth, the Moabite daughter-in-law that she didn't want to come along with her, the one that Naomi doesn't like very much at this point, finally says, Naomi, we're going to die. There's no food, like none at all. You're from here. You're the one that's supposed to have a plan of how we're going to live in Bethlehem. Tell me what I have to go into. And so Naomi looks up at her. She's like, fine. Here, Ruth, this is what you go and do. Look out the window. You see those people harvesting grain out there. You follow them, I don't know, 20 feet behind them. And whatever trash is on the ground, you pick up. You pick up the rejects, the unwanted stuff, the stuff they didn't care enough to reach down and grab as they were harvesting. And this meant that Naomi had truly hit rock bottom because in their culture, the people who went and picked up the trash, who picked up the rejects, those were the systemically poor. Those were the people who could not do another job in their culture. These were the people who had physical or mental disabilities that didn't allow them to continue to work. These were the people that they didn't want to work, like immigrants, like people like Ruth, the people who they just rejected and, didn't, and looked down on. That's who went and picked up the trash. So when, Ruth, when Naomi says, Ruth, go and pick it up, she says, fine, go pick up the scraps and the rejects. What she's saying is, go with the unwanted and the unnecessary because that's what we are anyway. I'm not worth anything more than that. Naomi thought that burnout was the end. She had called everything else dead in her life and thought that it was time to just move on but friends, burnout does not have to be the end. Naomi's wrong. Thousands of followers of Jesus have burnt out, so to speak, have gone through incredibly different periods in their life, have reached that place of bitterness, of frustration, of doubt, and yet they've kept going. Do you know why? Because they kept obeying Jesus. Let me say it to you in a clear and yet hopefully kind way, don't ever let anything stop you from obeying Jesus, ever. There's nothing that should come in between that. Not, no matter how high it seems like it's piled up against them, don't let it stop you. Instead, see it as the invitation that it is. It's a painful invitation, it's a hard invitation, but it's an invitation to draw closer to Jesus. It's an invitation to change your circumstances, to, to exchange your uh, expectations, to allow Jesus to move, to allow Jesus to change your reality. And Naomi begins to understand this as the story unfolds. Because Ruth's activity leads them to a place where she again starts to see the kindness of God. Ruth was desperate, and God blessed her in it. Ruth went and did a job that Naomi wouldn't have been caught dead doing, even if she was almost dead. And yet she did it. But I don't want to talk about what happened to Ruth, because that's next week. You come back for that next week. Today we're talking about Naomi. So Ruth next week, Naomi today. But Ruth goes out, and she comes back with so much food that, get this, Naomi gets off her butt and starts looking. She's like, girl. 
There is no way you should have made this much money today. What have you actually been doing? She gets up and she starts questioning her. She's like, I know you weren't just following them picking up stuff. That nobody picks up this much stuff when they're following them. She starts questioning and critiquing her for doing what it was that Naomi didn't have the guts to go out and do. And so Ruth tells her about a story about a man named Boaz who showed kindness to her, who gave to her a you know more than she ever would have expected. And Naomi in that moment has no choice but to recognize the goodness of God. No other option. She stands up, she looks at Ruth, and in chapter 2, verse 20, she says, May the Lord bless him. God is showing his kindness to us. Essentially, she says, God has not forgotten me. She begins to give up her bitterness so that she can worship. She acknowledges the goodness of God. She trusts that God is kind once again. And honestly, you should be astonished by this turn because no one does this. Not very often, at least, and we definitely don't see it on Instagram. We definitely don't see it in, in articles that people write about people. Choosing to worship God in your place of burnout and brokenness is revolutionary. It's outside of the norm. It's not what we do. We usually stay there. We don't get up, but she did. She begins to worship because she knows once again that God is good. Because the reality is that even though she wanted to ignore it, even though she wanted to forget it, even though she wanted to walk away from it, she deep inside herself had had an experience of the kindness of God that she couldn't reject, that she couldn't push away, that she couldn't just walk away from. She never stopped believing in that kindness. She was frustrated that she wasn't feeling it, but she couldn't walk away from it. This word kindness is used throughout the book of Ruth. It's this ancient term for kindness, for the love of God has said, that we see used over and over and over again all throughout the Old Testament. It's a deep kindness. It's one that we often don't even have a good uh, definition for, that leaders in the church have tried to define time and time again uh, because they haven't felt like the previous definitions have reached the point of actually explaining it well. Origen in the 300s, I would say, uh, he was a leader in the early church. He called this kindness a divine condescension, like the incarnation when God's spirit came upon Jesus. Augustine in the 500s says it as something that's better than life. John Calvin in the 1500s said that it was something against which people have no defense. Friends, have you ever experienced the deep kindness of Jesus? Have you ever encountered that deep love of God that seems undefinable, that you can't run away from? When you encounter the deep kindness of Jesus, when you encounter the deep love of Jesus, when you remain connected to his love, when you have an experience of his kindness, you cannot just walk away from it no matter how bad that it's gotten. No matter how burnt out you are, no matter how frustrated you are, no matter how bitter you are, no matter how many doubts that you have, you have to return because it's hooked you. 
It's done something in you that you cannot walk away from. It cannot be undone in your heart when you experience this. It can't go away. And friends, you don't want to. You want to remain connected. And so this has said, this kindness sneaks back into Naomi's heart and it begins to change her and it moves her to action. So she looks out the window and I can almost just see her stand up and look out the window when Ruth's telling this story and she goes, huh, Boaz, he's a relative of ours. This could go somewhere. All of a sudden the matchmaker's back on game. She knows what her job is once again. And so she begins to take steps. She was tired and she was bitter, but she took steps. She kept moving towards Jesus. She knew that she had to return home to Bethlehem, but she didn't know why. She didn't know what that was about. But when, Beth, when Boaz shows up, she realizes that she's not done yet and that she still has a calling to live out. Sometimes you need to take steps because it's the only thing you have left to do. And I hope you hear this the right way. But there's no breaks for followers of Jesus. No breaks. We don't get an excuse to, walk, to stop obeying him. We don't get an excuse to stop doing what it is that he's asked us to do. Your life may be busy. It might get really, really full. There might be lots of things going on that want to take your attention away. But the one thing that can't lose in that equation is Jesus. If Jesus is losing in the equation of your busyness, then other things have to go first. You cannot allow Jesus to be the thing that loses in the equation of your life. There are no breaks for followers of Jesus. Taking a break isn't an option. Get rid of other stuff. Move on. Keep following Jesus. And that's what Naomi begins to do. She begins to take steps. She lays out a plan for Ruth and Boaz. She tells Ruth to go and do something that's like super risque uh, in their culture to go lay at his feet. But that's Ruth's story. We're going to talk about that next week, so I'm not going to go there. But next week will be risque, guys. PG-13. Not really. Uh, she laid at his feet. I mean, I don't know. Maybe that's a euphemism. I don't know what it means. But uh, she lays at his feet and moves his cover. That seems pretty innocent to me. But she tells her to go and do all these things and ask him to redeem her. And what that means is she asks, she tells Ruth to go and ask Boaz to marry her so that the lineage of Naomi's husband can continue on. It wasn't over yet. Naomi takes up the role that she's been given. She's the protector, the guide of Ruth through this incredibly vulnerable period of Ruth's life. And Boaz, for some reason, the grace of God says, game on. And he immediately goes the next day and he redeems all that Naomi had started off in the beginning of the book saying was dead. Everything back because of this. So much so that in chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, the women in the town, they're back out again, they're talking. Uh, they say, praise the Lord who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. Now, better, the numbers might mean something to you, but the fact that these people in a very patriarchal society would look and say, your, daughter, your foreign daughter-in-law 
is better to you than seven naturally born Israelite sons is astonishing. Nothing short of that. It was almost heresy, honestly. It was kind of unbelievable. And God's kindness, Naomi has been restored through an unlikely source that she kept trying to get rid of through her Moabite daughter-in-law. Naomi didn't think that she was going to be restored this way. She expected her inheritance to come the normal way. She had two sons. She thought it was going to come through them. And yet, we see here that it comes through her daughter-in-law, her foreign daughter-in-law, and a distant relative. God, in His divine grace, tells her, shows her, that when she thought it wasn't a when she thought that it was over, that it actually wasn't. She lost, and there's nothing that can take away that loss and the pain that goes with it. But God wasn't done with her, and he wasn't done with her family at that point. There was still more, and he gave her an inheritance. As we come to an end, friends, you have a role to play in the kingdom of God each and every one of you. Getting there might have more frustration, might have more periods of bitterness, of burnout, uh, of depression, of doubt than you ever thought that it would have. But you can still get there. Even in those places, don't give up. Don't allow your inheritance to disappear simply because you're tired. Dig deeper. Keep taking steps. Remain connected to the love and the kindness of Jesus. And if you're in that place, ask Jesus to show you that kindness once again. Ask him to allow you to experience that. As the worship team comes back up, friends, find joy in the way that Jesus meets you in the midst of your burnout. Naomi tried to live her life as bitter. She said, that's where I'm going to be for the rest of my days. And yet, Jesus wouldn't let her. And here's the good news. He won't let you either. Go ahead. Test him on it. I promise you, he will meet you in that place if you ask him to. He won't leave you. Let's stand. And we're going to pray as we transition to a time of worship. Jesus, I thank you for your kindness that you show even in the most broken of places, even when we don't deserve it, even when our words and our actions have, have made it clear that we don't deserve it anymore, that your kindness still shows up. And I just ask for that this morning. I ask that you will fill us with your kindness Fill us with your joy. Fill us with a new experience of your love this day. Regardless of where we're at, if we're in a place of burnout, if we're doing fine, we want to encounter you today. And we ask for you to give us a new experience of your kindness right here, right now, today. So we just ask you to come and show yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.